Now hear God's holy word from 2 Samuel chapter 21, continuing our study in the book of 2 Samuel. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Now there was a famine in the years of David for three years, year after year, and David inquired of Yahweh, and Yahweh answered, it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of Yahweh? And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before Yahweh in Gibeah of Saul, whom Yahweh chose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of Yahweh's oath that was between them, between David and, the son of, and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, and five sons of Mirab, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the, the son of Barzillai, the Meholithite, and he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites. And they hanged them on the hill before Yahweh. So they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us give thanks together. Father, we come to your word today and uh, still entering a section of your, your word that is difficult and arduous and full of sorrows, and as we continue to read it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we continue to look toward our greater King, your Son, Jesus our Savior. And so by your Holy Spirit, Father, today guide us into truth. Fill me with your Spirit that I might uh, speak truth clearly, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. People of God, as we make our way through this section of God's holy word, several of you over the past few weeks have commented how really tough some of this material is and how gut-wrenching and difficult it's been. And I don't think anybody has implied that we shouldn't be studying it. We shouldn't, not, not that we shouldn't be reading it together. In fact, you know we need to know it. Second Samuel is just as inspired by the Holy Spirit as Romans or John's Gospel, or Genesis. We, we need to know all of this. Uh, but that doesn't make it any easier to uh, understand, or it doesn't make it any um, uh, less emotionally draining. This is tough material. This is tough stuff. It's tough to read. It's tough to study. Quite frankly, it's tough to present uh, on, on uh, many of these recent Lord's Days. Uh, which is why I'm thankful, as some of you have also pointed out as, at various points, I'm also thankful that we worship in such a way that not everything we do rises or falls on the strength of the sermon. We aren't here just for 
the sermon. It does take up a lot of time, and, and we do need to spend time in God's Word, and I'm not going to apologize for that. But, you know, when the sermon is on a real downbeat subject, as, as we've had over the last couple of weeks, or maybe just, you know, the pastor fumbles the football, as he is prone to do from time to time. Uh, but we remember that that's not the only reason we're here. We come together today to fellowship with the saints. We came to confess our sins. We, sa- we came and, and presented ourselves before God in His throne room, and we sang the Psalms together. We're going to eat at His table. Uh, we're going to confess our faith in Him. We heard a big section of His Word read this morning. We've sung uh, a lot of Scripture. And so we're, we're going to have an opportunity to give our tithes and offerings. Uh, and, and, and so we're blessed by all of this. You see, if, if this were just a personality cult and I was just here to, you know, deliver life coaching week by week by week, then the sermon better be upbeat. You know, it better, it better be, you know, this great oratory event. We better have a lot of affirmational language because that's, that's all we've got. We, we, we have to rely on the sermon to do everything else that the rest of the liturgy is designed to do. But that's not the case here, and I'm thankful for that. God forbid there ever be a personality called around me. That would be terrifying. But, but since we have other parts of the service to bear the weight of all these things, then my one job before you right now is to open God's Word, read it, tell you what it says, and, and, and teach, our way, teach our way through it. And that's what I hope to do again this morning. So you know where I'm going with this because I've already read the text, and if you were paying close attention you know that this is another ugly, dark, depressing chapter in the history of God's kingdom. You would think that after all of the doom and all of the gloom that we've been through with the, with the house of David and, and everything we've been through in David's life, that it's just about time for the sun to come out. It's just about time for the, for the little birds to start singing and for us to have some rest but not so fast. We have some more darkness in this section. And it's the kind of event that we need to step back and uh, reflect on and, and get the whole context for. So I, I read two chapters last. I'm not reading two chapters today. I, we're going to look at, we're not even going to look at a whole chapter today, just these 14 verses of this, of this one account, this one story, and spend time understanding exactly what the Holy Spirit means for us to understand out of, out of this section of God's Word. So we just wrapped up a major section of the narrative. It started back in chapter 9, and it went all the way through chapter 20. And that big section that we just wrapped up had to do with the establishment of the house of David. And we were working to answer the question throughout that whole section. I kept bringing it up. Who is the son of the promise? Who's going to be the son who gets to sit on the throne of David? Who's going to be the one to build God's house? And, and as that section opened, immediately David addresses the house of Saul and he, he keeps his promises to Jonathan to take care of his crippled son, Mephibosheth. That was, at the, that was in chapter 9. That was at the beginning of that long section. And then after that, we had that long, heartbreaking saga of David's sin and then his, his subsequent trouble with his sons. So from chapter 9 to chapter 20, over the course of that, the house of Saul is dealt with David's sons disqualify themselves until at the very end, we saw last week, now we have a clear path to Solomon. There's no question who the king is going to be. It's going to be Solomon. Uh, Amnon has disqualified himself. Absalom is out of the picture. Uh, Saul's house is gone and dealt with uh, and subdued. And, And that's where we left things at the end of chapter 20. Now, as we open chapter 21, 
through the end of the book now, we're dealing with an appendix that summarizes several events that happened throughout the reign of King David. The, the information in the history of chapter 21 does not happen right after the events of chapter 20. Everyone recognizes that this is, this is a gathering of, of information that happened along the way, along the time of, of David's reign. So this event that we're reading about this morning likely happened uh, several years before Absalom's death. The one marker that we get, the one historical marker, is that it happened after David made his covenant with Mephibosheth to take care of Mephibosheth. But that's the only historical marker that we have. So we know it was after that, but it was likely before the death of, of Absalom. So just as David's story began back, you know, a couple years ago when we were first starting uh, 1 Samuel, David's story began with him in conflict with the house of Saul. And then, and then the previous section we just read began with David addressing the house of Saul and keeping his promises to Jonathan. Now, this section, this appendix begins again with what? David dealing with the descendants of Saul. It, it, it's like every time we open a new chapter of David's life, who's the first person we have to deal with? We have to deal with Saul and Saul's house and Saul's children. You ever get tired of dealing with the same things over and over and over and over? You ever think, boy, okay, we got that, Lord. We figured that one out, okay? We put that one to rest. And then the next day dawns, and okay, we've got that same problem. It's mutated some. It's a little bit different today than it was yesterday. But really, at core, it's the same problem. And we feel like we're dealing with the same things over and over. Certainly, David had to feel like, okay, we, we, we've done this. We've dealt with this, but here it is again. Sometimes, it's as if God is saying, yeah, run that play again. Okay, let's, let's run that play again. Let's, let's try that again until we are sanctified. And of course, that happens when we uh, fully or fully sanctified when we depart this life. Otherwise, be ready and be prepared to run that play again and don't despair. I mean, that's, that's the way it goes. And that's, that's what we have to be ready for. So David now at the beginning of this section, we have to deal once again with, with Saul and his house. So here's what's happened at, at, as we begin this um, story. At some point in David's reign, there was a devastating three-year famine. So year after year, the crops failed in the fields and people were famished. Now, this is David's glorious kingdom. David, you know, he came from Bethlehem, the house of bread. This glorious kingdom that is planted in a land flowing with milk and honey, this kingdom is starving. The, the, the bread king is, is reigning over a starving kingdom. Now, after three years, you pretty much, you start to figure out that something is wrong with this picture. We are the most blessed kingdom on earth and we're starving. So what is going on here? What's happening? And after three years, David finally comes with the idea, you know what? I got an idea. Maybe we should ask the Lord about this. Maybe we should see if something's going on here. And what's funny is it takes three years for him to do it. Um, but David finally goes to the high priest and the answer comes back from the Lord. Yahweh says, this is because of Saul. And this is because of his bloodthirsty house and the way he killed the Gibeonites. This famine is God's judgment for the way that the sin of Saul has been ignored and hasn't been dealt with the right way. Well, before we take another step, we've got to remember, okay, who were the Gibeonites? Why was this significant? What did Saul do to them? And why is this so grievous that God would punish the entire kingdom for something that happened many years previous to this? Okay, so, so who were the Gibeonites? We get a little reminder in verse 2. Uh, the, the, the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. 
the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but were the remnant of the Amorites, the children of Israel, uh, those that the children of Israel had sworn uh, protection to. And we read that Saul sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Okay, let's go a little bit deeper into history. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, when the generation who came out of Egypt had perished in the wilderness, now we're ready to go in to take the land of Canaan. And Moses stands before God's people and he preaches a series of sermons to them. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is. It's a series of sermons that, that Moses delivers to the people before they go in to take the land. And Moses reminds them of this. Uh, in Deuteronomy 20, he says, of the cities of those people, which Yahweh or God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as Yahweh your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do all according to all their abominations, which they've done for your gods, and you sin against Yahweh your God. We, we just sang about this this morning in Psalm 135. We sang about God's mighty conquest over all these nations that were listed here, these Canaanite nations that God intended to exterminate. So all of the cities of the Canaanites and the people themselves, God says, were to be utterly and completely destroyed. This is total cultural extermination of a hateful, idolatrous people. So, so what happens to Jericho is what is supposed to happen to all the cities and all the nations of, of Canaan. The, the language is used of a whole burnt offering or an ascension offering. That's, that's the similarity here, where in a whole burnt offering or an ascension offering, the entire animal is offered on the altar and the whole thing is consumed by the fire. Now in the peace offering, you know this because you know about all the offerings, you know how they work, but in the peace offering, you put the animal on the altar and you and the priest and your family eat together before the Lord. It is a, it is a communion offering. Ordinarily, you get to eat. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a barbecue grill, right? The altar is a big barbecue grill and you get to put good meat on there and you get to eat it in the presence of God with your family and with the priest, but not in the ascension offering. In the ascension offering, the entire animal has to be consumed. Jericho was an ascension offering. Jericho was a whole burnt offering. Everything had to go up to the Lord. You don't get to take anything out of it. You don't get to eat it. It all belongs to God. Now, remember a man named Achan learned the hard way that when God says utterly destroyed, he means utterly destroyed. He means all of it goes to God. And Achan, uh, of course, was judged for holding back some of the treasure from Jericho. <clears throat> okay, so that was, the, that was God's plan. That was God's order for his people. Utterly destroy the Canaanites and all the people who, who uh, live there. But in Joshua chapter 9, there's this curious little story where there's a tribe of people who approach Joshua and ask for peace. They come, they want to join the church. They want to, want to be part of the people of God. They are an Amorite tribe called the Gibeonites. Now the Amorites are on the list that God gave his people. And so the Gibeonites are part of the Amorite uh, nationality. They're a tribe on the list that's to be destroyed. But when they come to Joshua, they act like they're, a, they're, they're from a far country. They act like they've been traveling a long way. So they have raggedy clothes and they, they pull moldy bread out of, their, uh, out of their saddlebags and says, look, this, we took this bread out of the oven when we left home. And now look, this bread is, is moldy. And uh, they look like they've been coming a, a long way to join with God's people. Well, Israel immediately accepts them and says, boy, yeah, we'd love to have you. We're so thankful for you. They believe their story 
without asking God what they should do. They didn't, they didn't seek God's word on this. And Joshua just swears an oath and he says, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to protect you. You're part of us. You're with us. Nobody's going to harm you. And Joshua promises that they'll be spared completely and that they will live. Now, by the way, I'm going to jump off to the side here. Um, last week, we read a little note uh, and I kind of skimmed right over it. But um, when uh, uh, Sheba... I'm sorry, when Joab was pursuing Sheba, remember, he and Amasa, this is back in chapter 20, verse 8. Joab and Amasa met at the large stone, which is in Gibeon. And when I read that, I thought, what large stone? I don't know about any large stone at Gibeon. That's never referenced before. What what is that supposed to be? Well, why would there be a large stone at Gibeon? Well, it seems reasonable to think Anytime you make a covenant, you pile up some stones, you write down the covenant, you inscribe it, and there is, the, there is the covenant. So this must have been the covenant memorial or the marker for Joshua's covenant with the Gibeonite people that remained as a testament to every, every generation to come later that you are to keep this covenant. You are to hold on to this covenant that Joshua made with these Gibeonite people. Um, also, uh, there was a little Gibeonite reference when David got back home and Mephibosheth said, you know, look at my raggedy clothes, look at my long hair. He sounded very much like a Gibeonite. So all these little uh, clues to what is about to happen uh, in, the, in the previous chapter um, there, that, that's pretty interesting. But at any rate, Joshua makes this covenant with these people. Three days later, Israel finds out that these Gibeonites were not from a far country after all. In fact, their neighbors from just up the road who, who acted like they were from a far country. Now, here's the problem. They should have been exterminated, but Joshua made a covenant with them. They should be wiped out, but we've made an agreement. So how do we deal with this? Joshua and the people refrain from doing them any violence. Some of the people complain and say, oh, they tricked us. They deserve to die. But Joshua is committed to the covenant. And and Joshua says, we can't touch them lest God's wrath be on us. Joshua is not going to repeat that ugly chapter uh, of, uh, you know, remember the men of Shechem who um, made a covenant with uh, Jacob's sons and they agreed to be circumcised. And then the older sons of Jacob go in and kill everybody while they're still recovering from that. Joshua's not going to repeat that ugly chapter. He's made a covenant and he's going to honor it. Um, So if you're in covenant with God, and if you're in covenant with his people, you are spared from judgment. Now, that is a key to everything that's about to come. If you are in covenant with God, and if you are in covenant with his people, you will be spared from judgment. That's that's fundamental to everything we're about to read. Okay, so Joshua doesn't put them to death, but he does put them to work. They don't die, but they've got to go to work. And so Joshua says, from now on, you're going to be in service to the tabernacle. You're going to be woodcutters and you're going to be water carriers. You see, all the sacrifices at the the altar need fire. And in order to have fire, you need to have wood. Uh, you need to have firewood. And so uh, the pur- purifications, those purifications that happen at the tabernacle need water. So you need people to cut down trees and split wood and you need people to carry water. So the Gibeonites now are going to do all of this work and they're impressed into service at the tabernacle. They're dedicated to the tabernacle, wholly consecrated to God. Now, uh, of course, they don't mind this deal. They don't mind. It's actually quite an honor to be the tribe of people who serve at the tabernacle. 
And when it comes down to it, what would you rather have? Would you rather have extermination or would you rather live and serve God at his house? Well, it's pretty simple. They serve God at his house and, and as history goes on, they take a, a lot of pride in, in being these servants. They really enjoy this, this job and this duty and this designation. However, they don't have any more cities. They don't have any more land. They're devoted to God entirely as living sacrifices. Now, where do we get that language? How do we understand this? Well, Leviticus chapter 27, and there's another reference in Numbers 18. There's a complicated set of laws, but there is provision in God's law for servants to be dedicated to the Lord's house, and they're treated like living offerings, living sacrifices to go and serve God at his tabernacle. Now, by the way, there's another important story in the Bible where this becomes really helpful and really relevant. Uh, because back in Judges, uh, this is the kind of offering that Jephthah promised to make if the Lord gave him victory, remember? Now, if you don't know about this provision that you can offer your servants to service at the tabernacle, and, and that's considered a, a, an offering to the tabernacle, then you may think, you know, you hear Jephthah's vow, and Jephthah says, the first, uh, the first thing to come out of my house, the first thing that comes out of my doors to greet me, I'm going to offer as an ascension offering, and you think, well, what he thinks is when he gets home, you know, he's going to find a bull or a goat, and then he's going to offer that as an ascension offering uh, on, the, on the altar. Now, if you don't know that provision, that may be your thought. And then, and then Jephthah is surprised when his daughter is the first one out of the house. And then you think, oh my goodness, Jephthah is forced by his vow to make a human sacrifice. Does anybody ever read that story and think that's what he did? You, you remember that? Well, first of all, there's a couple of problems with thinking that way. First of all, Jephthah is um, filled with the Holy Spirit when he makes that vow, number one. So the Holy Spirit didn't fill him to make a rash or foolish vow. That's the first thing. Second of all, Israelites didn't keep goats and cows in the house. Jephthah says, the first thing to come out of my doors to greet me, I will offer as an ascension offering. Did, did Jephthah really think that when he got home, a goat was going to come out and greet him? Is that what he thought? Did he think a bull was going to come out of the house? Is that, is that what's on his mind? No, certainly. Um, because he knows that there's a means of dedicating your servants to God's house as living sacrifices. He had in mind, I'm going to dedicate the first servant that greets me to God's house to serve there. And then when Jephthah gets home, he's dismayed to find that his daughter came out of the house first, not a, not a servant. But he didn't kill her. He sent her to serve at the tabernacle under this provision in the law. Uh, Samuel was dedicated by Hannah to go serve at the tabernacle. So, so this is what happens to the Gibeonites. Joshua works all of this out according to the law, and they're sent to the tabernacle to serve as perpetual servants. They belong to God. They weren't put to death. There wasn't a way to undo uh, their commitment uh, to the tabernacle, but were they removed from the land? God's desire was for these Canaanite people to be removed from the land. Were they removed? Yes. Were they offered as a whole burnt offering? Were they offered as an ascension offering the way that Jericho was offered? Yes. As living sacrifices, utterly dedicated to God's house, the Gibeonites were offered to the service of God at their taber tabernacle. And so they become an institution in Israel. They become an institution at God's house. They're there at the tabernacle at the temple later, and later even in Nehemiah, we still see the Gibeonites serving God at the, at the new temple. Now, we've got all that background. We understand where the Gibeonites came from and who they were. Now we find out that at some point in Saul's reign, he decided that the Gibeonites should be put to death. 
When did he do this? We don't know. There isn't a direct reference to this anywhere in 1 Samuel. There is a reference, remember, when Samuel uh, sent Doag the Edomite to go kill the priests at God's sanctuary, put the priests to death. While that was heinous by itself, it might have been compounded in that he also had the Gibeonites put to death as well because they would have been witnesses to that. And so the Gibeonites serving alongside the, uh, the priests might have been killed as well. Um, or maybe, this is another idea, maybe Saul in his anger at having the kingdom taken away from him, Saul maybe thinks he can get back into God's good favor. Hey, I'll just finish the conquest. But you know, Saul can never get out of his own way. Saul can never do what's right. He always does the, the stupidest thing available to him once he's, he's got the Holy Spirit removed from him. So um, he, he takes his anger out on the Gibeonites who he thinks, well, these are Canaanites and they deserve to die, but they're easy targets and Saul uh, kills a bunch of Gibeonites. We don't know precisely when Saul did this. All we know is that by chapter 21 of 2 Samuel, the land is under a curse and there is famine in the land and God is judging the land. Why? Because of the way that Saul mistreated the Gibeonites and broke the covenant that Joshua made with them. Now, that's the background. Back to 2 Samuel. Famine for three years. Why? Saul and his bloodthirsty house and the way he killed the Gibeonites. The ranks of the Gibeonites are diminished and they are sorrowful and they are demoralized so that they've stopped working. You know, at this point in history, the tabernacle has been torn apart. The Ark of the Covenant is one, one place and the, uh, the, the tabernacle meeting and the, the, the altar is in a different place. So now David is reconstituting the, the kingdom. He's trying to pull everything back together, but we can't do this with our greatest human resource parked. We need the Gibeonites. We need them back online. We want to get everything together. So David gathers the resources and David buys the land so that when his son Solomon takes the throne, Solomon can get to work immediately building the temple. And so a significant portion of, of Solomon's success is going to be getting the Gibeonites back to work and getting them back in service. So David goes to the Gibeonites and he says, all right, wh what do you need? They respond, we don't want silver, we don't want gold. That's not going to do it. And David, we don't want you to put anybody to death. We don't want you to execute anybody. And David says, okay, well, what does that leave? What will it be? I'll do whatever you say. And they answer in verse 5, and they, they, they answer the king, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us and we will hang them before Yahweh in Gibeah of Saul, whom Yahweh chose. Saul tried to exterminate us, even though we were in covenant with Israel and we were in covenant with Israel's God. Saul tried to exterminate us so we asked for seven of his sons to hang before God. And David agrees to this. David says, yes, I will deliver to you seven of Saul's remaining descendants, essentially seven of Saul's grandsons, with one major exception. I'm not giving you Mephibosheth. Why? Why is Mephibosheth spared? Well, for the same reason the Gibeonites should have been spared. Mephibosheth is in covenant with the king. Mephibosheth sits at the king's table. Again, once again, if you rest under the protection of the covenant, you are spared. Mephibosheth has a big sign on him that says, don't touch, don't mess with this guy. Why? He's in covenant with the king. So in verse 7, we read this, but the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, 
because of Yahweh's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth. Wait a minute. I thought we didn't take Mephibosheth. Well, these are the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul. So evidently, Mephibosheth has an uncle named Mephibosheth. And don't get confused. This is a different Mephibosheth. You think, that's not right. That doesn't work. I've got two cousins named Dwayne. So, you know, that's... And they're all spelled different. But that, that happens. You know, you kind of run out of names after a while. When you have lots of kids. So there's two Mephibosheths here. Uh, there's another Mephibosheth. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Mirab, the daughter of Saul. Your English translation may say Michal. It's why we, this is Mirab, who was the wife of Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. This is not Michael. Remember, Michael, uh, Michal, remained childless, right? This is Mirab, uh, though there's some, it's one of those little textual things, one of those little funny things, but we have confirmation. This is Mirab, not Michal. Um, and, and he delivered them. He takes these seven men and he delivers them into the hands of the Gibeonites and they hang them on the hill before Yahweh. So they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of the harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. Now we've got another puzzle to solve. This is a problem. How was this just? How was this fair to execute these men for the sins of their grandfather? I mean, Saul did this. They didn't do this. Deuteronomy 24 says this, and you know this. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children be put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. So what gives? How do we reconcile this? How do we put this together? Well, the best I can tell, the best answer I have is that Deuteronomy is prohibiting judgment against sons for the sins of their fathers in individual criminal cases. So if a father commits a crime, you can't execute his son for that crime in an individual criminal case. But this is a much bigger sin. This is, this is bigger than one sin by one man against another. Saul didn't violate the Gibeonite covenant as an individual. He didn't do this as a man. He did it as a representative of all of Israel. Saul was Israel's head. He was their federal head. He was their king, their, their covenant head. And so Saul's sin was institutional sin. It was national sin. It was representational sin. And so as he sinned, he wrapped up the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Saul in the guilt. So that now, many years later, who gets punished? Not just Saul's house, but all of Israel is suffering. Why? Because this was covenant level. This was uh, representational sin, this, the sin of the head. So when King Saul violated the Gibeonites, all of Israel broke covenant with the Gibeonites. And all of Israel was worthy of death. And many suffer for these three years. Well, we, we know this, and this is where we understand this point, right? Adam sinned against God, God's commandment in the garden. Adam was our king. Adam was our father. Adam was our covenant head. And when he fell, we fell, right? When, when Adam fell, all of humanity fell with him. And we understand that, and we, we get it. When Adam committed rebellion worthy of death, when he broke the covenant, we are all deserving of death now. We all broke the covenant. And the only way to repair the covenant is atonement. It's sacrifice. Someone had to die to restore the covenant. So no, sons are not put to death 
for their father's sins in individual criminal cases. But at the same time, Jesus was put to death for our sins. So anytime we read something like this and we want to talk about what's fair and what's not fair, when we say, oh, these seven guys shouldn't have died for this, and we say, that's not fair. Anytime we want to read something and say, that's not fair, we, we need to talk about the cross and start there and say what's fair and what's not fair. Was that fair? Was the cross fair? Was, was Jesus' death fair? No, no, it wasn't. That's, that's, that's our starting point, though, in these conversations. What happens here is that God requires, because of Saul's sin, even many years after his death, God requires the final extermination of Saul's house because, because Saul sought to exterminate God's house. Saul made war on the priests. Saul made war on the Gibeonites. They were God's inheritance. The Gibeonites were God's treasure in his house. So you make war on God and God is going to bring the war to you. God responded with total war on Saul's house. Now, did these men, though, we still, I still have this question, did these men, these seven men, individually deserve to die? Well, let, let's see if this satisfies that question in your mind and in your heart. Because when we first read about this, when David asks uh, Yahweh, what's up? Here's the answer he gets in verse 1. It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house. It's not just that Saul is bloodthirsty. It's his house. God calls his house bloodthirsty. God calls Saul's grandsons bloodthirsty. God knows their hearts. He knows their minds. He knows their intentions. He knows their aspirations. And God always does right. God is always, always, always just. God is never unjust. And he is always, always, always good. So don't ever say, oh, how can God do this? Oh, no, you don't do that. You always say, yep, God knows what he's doing. I may not understand what God's doing. I may not always be able to work it out. But God knows what he's doing. Now, we might reason it this way. Perhaps if they had made a covenant with David, the way that Mephibosheth was in covenant with David, perhaps if they sat at David's table, they would have been spared too. And there would have been another solution here. As soon as Saul and Jonathan die, what does David do? He's looking for ways to bless Saul's house and Saul's descendants and, and, and Jonathan's family. And while David is looking around for somebody to bless and somebody to pour his mercy on and somebody to bring into the fold and somebody to have at his table, these guys are staying on the periphery. These guys are down in Benjamin. These guys are far away from Jerusalem. They distance themselves from the covenant. They keep the fellowship of the king at arm's length. And when the time of reckoning came, they hanged. Is there a lesson in that? <laughs> Is there, is there any application there that you see? We're going to come to it. Verse 10. <clears throat> so uh, Rizpah, the daughter of Aah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor beasts of the field by night. And David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the, the concubine of Saul, had done. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Remember, they rescued their bodies from the battlefield. He took them from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the, beats, the streets of Bashan. Well, that's when the Philistines wanted to defile them. Where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul and Gilboa. So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there. 
And they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. We know that. They hang there, cursed of God, beginning at the barley harvest, and they hang there until the rains come. The rains are evidence that God has overturned the curse on the land. The rains mean that now the crops are going to thrive in the field. And now it means that the curse on Saul's family is lifted, and David mercifully returns the bodies to be properly buried, and everything turns to rest even in the midst of this mother's sorrow as she keeps the beasts and the birds off of the bodies of her sons and nephews. Now, certainly reading this, this is no fun because this material is gruesome and it is brutal. But this is a picture of atonement. Redemption and forgiveness and atonement is gruesome and it's brutal. In the garden, after God deals with Adam and Eve, he slaughters two animals and he takes their bloody hides and he puts them on their backs, on the backs of Adam and Eve. And he covers their nakedness and and he signifies their forgiveness with death. How how shocked and how utterly disgusted Adam and Eve must have been. And what, what is going on here? Well, atonement's brutal. It's bloody. It's ugly. In Leviticus 1, this, this never makes its way onto a, a greeting card. This, you never find this stuff on a, on a uh, Christian calendar, right? With a little sunset behind it. In Leviticus 1, If his offering is of the flocks, of the sheep, or of the goats, as a burnt offering, he shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord and the priests. Aaron's son shall sprinkle its blood all around the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash the legs and the entrails with water. Then the priest shall bring it all and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offer made by fire, a sweet aroma to Yahweh. How how, how graphic. How brutal. Well, atonement is brutal. It's bloody. It's ugly. John 19. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Horrific, nightmarish absolutely horrible and nauseating. The process of atonement is nasty. It is repulsive. And the further we try to push away from it, though, the the more we try to become refined to the point that we're completely comfortable with a bloodless gospel and a painless cross, and the more we want a purely sentimental, sentimental religion, the less and less seriously we take our sins. You know what's more disgusting than atonement? my sins. You know, what's, you know what's more nauseating than cutting a bull's throat and arranging its pieces on the altar and watching it completely consumed by the fire? You know what's more nauseating than that? Our rebellion for God, our hatred for His law, our refusal to submit to Him, our lack of obedience, our thinking that we can just do things our own way, our reliance on our own wisdom, a worldly pop psychology and pop, pop, pop philosophy and, and all this, that's what's, that's what's really ugly. 
That's what's ugly. Our hatred for God's law is what's nauseating. And so one great thing about stories like this is that it's possible for us to get so familiar with Calvary that it doesn't shock us anymore, right? We say, oh, well, the cross, yeah, I mean, it's on necklaces and it's on jewelry and it's on, you know, little things, little trinkets. We get so familiar with Calvary that it doesn't shock us anymore. This story and stories like this pull us back to the truth that atonement, making things right with God, is bloody, awful business. Sin brings with it the revolting stench of death. Your sin needs forgiveness and not just a waving of the hand, not just a, oh, it'll be okay. Your sin doesn't need just uh, vague promises and, 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 and vague hope. Your sin required the death of a priceless, perfect sacrifice, the very Son of God. And it wasn't pretty. It was ugly and it was brutal. You see, may we never get so familiar that, that we're no longer caught or gripped in how, how much this costs Jesus to forgive us our sins, how much it costs God. And so that's the first thing. Your sin needs forgiveness, and the only way that forgiveness is secured is through atonement. And this is what atonement looks like. The second thing that the story drives home if I could shift gears, is the happy part, the happiest thing I've said all morning. If you are in covenant with the king, God delivers you. God avenges you. The Gibeonites were violated and God defended them and he vindicated them. The blood of the martyrs cried out from the ground and God delivered his people. Mephibosheth was in covenant with David and he was off limits when the wrath of God hit the house of Saul. You, child of God, are in covenant with the king. That means you have a wall of protection around you. In life and in death, God goes to bat for you. When you are attacked, God takes that personally. If they make war on you, they make war on the house of God. China has declared war on the church. God takes that personally. God will defend his heritage. You are shielded. You are guarded by God and no one can separate from you. No one can get in between you and God. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice and they hear me. I give them my eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. You are in covenant with the king. You eat at his table like Mephibosheth. He has transferred his wealth to you just as David transferred his wealth to Mephibosheth. You have inheritance in his kingdom. So when God's wrath for sin falls, it does not fall on you only on those who are not in covenant. Psalm 34, Yahweh redeems the soul of his servants and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. None of those who trust in him shall be condemned. God's mercy has pursued you to do you good. In his mercy, he has caught you. The way that, the way that David pursued David, uh, Saul's house to do them good. And those who submit to him stand in the day of judgment. So let us trust and obey every day. Don't leave his side. Uh, hold fast to the covenant in which he holds you. Let's pray. Father, we ask you for your spirit that we might 
uh, come to grips with the reality of what atonement costs, what it took to save us, and at the same time rest in your wonderful promises that we belong to you and no one can snatch us out of your hand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.